0: Welcome to the Scholar Soup podcast, brought to you by the University of Queensland Library. In this podcast series, we are going to meet with amazing women who found their success in academic and professional roles at the University of Queensland. They are resilient, smart, proactive, and more importantly, they are now working together to implement systemic changes that could make your career progression that little bit easier. If success breeds success, then listen to their stories and learn from the best. In this episode, I meet with Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation, Professor Bronwyn Hodge. Professor Hajj has 22 years of experience leading and undertaking research focused on the nexus of agricultural and environmental systems. She is passionate about making an impact by generating knowledge, technology and practices that make our world more sustainable, secure and resilient. She has become Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation in a research-intensive university and all of that after starting her career quite literally working for peanuts. Professor Bronwyn Harch, good afternoon and welcome. Thank you, Elena. Uh, Bronwyn, as Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation, you manage a multi-million dollar portfolio. Does being a statistician help? How did your interest actually evolve? Yeah, you're right. I have got the best job in the whole world um, in
1: terms of managing research at a university like the Univers- University of Queensland. So I do enjoy my job and you'll going to hear a little bit more, I hope. Um, through the podcast about what I love so much about my job so how did my interest in statistics get sparked Um, well as it always is it goes back to school days and I was really interested in mathematics and I was good at mathematics too so that helped to keep you motivated and that your parents thought something interesting was going on for you as well. So it's when I went to university that I found out I could put two of my great loves together, which was science and technology with mathematics, um, through statistical science. And so I was learning about statistical science. It was one of the only subjects where we went out in the field and did field trips. And I thought, gee, mathematics is getting me out in the field. This is pretty cool. (laughs) Um, and I was doing environmental science at the time. So we were doing stuff with spiders in rainforests and doing stuff with koalas and birds. And I really fell in love with the fact that back in, back at base, I was doing a lot of analytical modelling, but I could see the difference it was making in the field. So what grabbed me on statistical science was its application and um, that I could apply it not only in the environmental science area that I was trained in, but Um, I've been working in health, manufacturing, defence, so many different areas. So it provided a pathway to many different doors. So that's what
0: really got me hooked. That's amazing. That's (laughs) such a good plug for mathematics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So uh, how do you use your expertise as a data scientist in your current role as the principal, academic and administrative officer of the university?
1: So as a research leader, when where there's lots of different decisions you have to make, um, you have to develop strategy and you also have to implement strategy. And as I mentioned through that, you have to make a lot of decisions. So my data science expertise for me helps me uh, rely on data and evidence um, for a lot of the different stages I was t- talking about. Uh, data and insights from quantitative information, but also the insights you get from people. So, you know, when you're walking around talking to people, that's just another sensing device, um, quantitative information, qualitative information, sorry. So bringing that together to help form strategy. So I think the kind of questions that you asked as a data scientist, as, as a statistical scientist, it's about uh, understanding variation in different people's views. How do you manage data and different views to then help develop strategy and implement it? I think the other part about implementing strategy is that you have to take stock of are you heading in the right direction? So I'm a big believer in visualising and tracking performance as well, and that's a big part of my job. How's a university tracking in its what I call research vitality, um, both excellence and impact? How do we track that? Um, So that kind of data visualisation kind of um, thought process really helps with tracking our performance that we're going to get to where we want to
0: get to. Sounds very exciting, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And now, Bronwyn, can we talk a little bit about your career progression? So uh, could you tell us about the time uh, in Hyderabad, India? Yeah, so um, when I was
1: doing my PhD, uh, I was doing my PhD at the University of Queensland, actually, and I was in the agriculture department. So again, you can see that splicing together of an application domain with statistics, in that point of time was agriculture and statistics. And um, I had a, a PhD project that was funded by the Grains Research and Development Corporation. And I talk about it as the period of time when I was working for peanuts, because I was actually working for the peanut industry, and um, the peanut industry globally is based out of India. It's one of the main staple crops there. So the world banks of seed for crops are based in different countries. And for peanut, what they call groundnut, was based in India. Uh, so I was working on big data collections that were in the world collection of germplasm. So think seeds, peanut seeds. Um, they had big fridges there. And at that point in time, data didn't come to me because it was too big. Um, so it wasn't you know, was last week that I did my PhD, it was a few years ago. So I had to travel to the data, and boy, am I lucky that I had that opportunity. So I ended up working with uh, plant breeders, um, with uh, high-performance computing people, working with agronomists and farmers in the field because it was understanding how the data was being collected. So in Hyderabad, I was working with a big multidisciplinary team of people on new statistical methodology to analyse these big data, which was then uh, really big data sets. Um, so that's how I found myself to be in Hyderabad. And I went back there twice during my PhD. And uh, since I've finished my PhD, I've been back there twice, um, interacting with the statistical community there. And again, it was about the application of statistical methodology in agriculture. So, yeah, I, re- I learned a lot about not only statistics, Um, how to do multidisciplinary research, but enjoy a culture that was very different from my own as well. So it's such a privilege to be in another country as part of doing my training.
0: Uh, Were they doing things differently the way we do it here in Australia?
1: Yeah, in terms of the research and innovation endeavour, um, endeavor, no, the way um, research and innovation was being undertaken at that time was similar. But the difference was I was working in a university where most of the focus at that time was around discovery research. Mm-hmm. And so I was really focused on discovery, creating new applied methodologies for these big data sets. But working with um, this particular institute in India, it was the International Crops and Research Institute for the Semi-Arid Tropics, ICRISAT, they're a very applied research organisation. And so there they were wanted to know, well, all that theory and stuff you're doing is great, Brahman, but how is it going to apply to how we grow out the seeds, how we interact with the farmers, and how do we manage the data? So I had sort of the best of both worlds back at the university getting that excellence around discovery research. But working with the applied institution in India um, was making sure someone was going to use what I was actually implementing. So I had the best
0: of both worlds at that point. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. So what was the next stop in your career journey then? Can you tell us a little bit about your work um, in CSIRO?
1: Yeah, um, I I work with CSIRO for eighteen and a half years. So how long have we got? Uh, <laughs> um, I thought I'd won the lotto. Actually, when I got a job at CSIRO, because I mentioned to you I'd been working in an applied research organisation in India, and so to be able to work in Australia's premier applied institution uh, was a you know really real boon for me. So working there for 18 and a half years, as I mentioned, there's certainly a lot of lessons I learnt, so I'll try and give you the 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 top-of-the-pops lessons. I learnt that conducting research is equally valuable whether you're doing discovery research, applied research, demonstrating your research or deploying it. There's no no one that's more important than the other. They're all equally important. And that as a researcher, depending on where you are on that spectrum... Um, you have to understand the movement between those different phases and how you have to partner to move through those phases. So that was a really important uh, lesson I I want people to think about as well. Um, That big challenges, the stuff that really mattered, um, that had to be solved, it was better solved through multidisciplinary teams rather than me thinking about it by myself or thinking about it only within my own disciplinary team of statisticians and mathematicians. The other lesson is that uh, excellent research is delivered with excellent research support. So I felt that um, when my research or that of my teams was being coached along by business development and commercialisation people, with comms people, with finance, the infrastructure, the legal people, when it was a true team involving all of those people, we knew we we're going to have impact on our research. So I think it's thinking about that full spectrum of the coaching team you need to get your research out there. And and lastly, I think it's um, the most refining kind of lesson is leading people. And I think it's the one that uh, was the most refining. They you know, talk about refining fire, that you come out better through it, although it hurt at the time, <laughs> is when you're leading people, you have to know how to help them reach their potential and achieve their goals. And that can be really exhilarating. But You also have experiences of very confronting times when you're speaking to staff about their performance, that perhaps their aspirations don't align with the organisation. And it doesn't mean individually those aspirations are wrong, it's just they're not meeting in the middle. And how you then have that honest conversation with people that you don't drag them along that everything's going to be okay, it'll work out. It won't work out because there's a fundamental misalignment. But then how do you help people discover another pathway? So I think that's a really important lesson around leadership.
0: I learned there as well. And actually, it does sound like such a successful and satisfying career. So what were you looking for when you actually decided to move to the higher education sector?
1: Yeah, Uh, it was a Friday afternoon and I picked up the phone (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, well, I think it's a bit of a lesson uh, really that I did something quite unusual that usually I have a rule that I wouldn't pick up phones Friday afternoon because it's never going to be good news, never going to be good news. So I did actually pick up the phone this Friday and someone asked me if I wanted to, to consider going to the higher education sector. So one is make sure you ask someone because you never know what they're going to answer. Uh, I was intrigued by what they were trying to do. The, um, this particular university uh, was QUT, um, looking at uh, doing uh, a research institute in a very different mode. Um, so it wasn't about the hero professor leading a research institute. It was uh, uh, They were looking for a research professor that was going to enable others. So I was really interested in how a university would have that kind of a model where it wasn't about... You know the hero professor. It was uh, facilitating the work of many different people. So I, I'm someone who likes to change. Um, while I was in sorrow for a long time, that organisation changes a lot. So I'm quite motivated by challenging myself to do things differently. And in my interview of that organisation, so they, it's always about people think about you being interviewed. But I equally interviewed them back because for me to take that leap, I needed to know the leadership there had as much courage as I had. And so that was what I was looking for when I was kind of interviewing them. So I was I was quite impressed that the higher ed sector were looking at trying to do things differently. And sounds, sounds amazing. I think it's how it's uh, six years later,
0: I'm still in the higher ed, so I'm enjoying <laughs> it. Love it. <laughs> Uh, Bronwyn, you're also a chair of a UQ gender steering committee that consists of 23 staff and students from across the university. So I have heard that you played a really big role in the success of UQ's SAGE Bronze Award. There's obviously a lot more that needs to be done, but what makes you hope that UQ will be able to improve on our equity, diversity and inclusion culture?
1: Yeah, I I, um, joined the university when uh, the team that was putting together the proposal for the SAGE Athena Swan were probably halfway through, and there'd been a lot of work by a self-assessment team of taking stock of where the university was at and some of the actions. Um, So we had a big list of things that we needed to do, and it had to be consolidated in a way to tell a narrative. What was the UQ story? About what we were doing with gender diversity. So, you probably uh, all this data and insight. So, you know, I was in my element of how do you create a narrative? And so, I worked a lot with the team on creating the narrative to have the evidence for our action plan. Um, so, that, that was great fun, particularly as you joined the uni, I got to really find out a lot about what was going on at the university when you ride in at that gender equity kind of element. Um, so, you asked me, why am I hopeful? So I'm hopeful because of the progress we've already made since we've got the Bronze Award. So we were awarded that earlier this year and it was February, I think. A lot's happened since February. And some of the things that I've already seen is it's the basic stuff like people having it in their conversations. When I'm in different other meetings that aren't about gender equity, people bring up the issues about have we thought about gender equity in the context of our discussion, whether it's pay gaps, promotion, recruitment, all those kinds of things. I've seen we've had women only positions um, in physics. We've had some of those advertised and recruited in. So it takes a lot of courage to go, we're just going, you know, uh, gender only, women only positions. I've seen uh, senior women recruited as well. So I think there's a lot of positive signs, Alana, on, on our journey
0: for achieving gender equity. That's really, really good to hear. And um, how do you think men can support this initiative?
1: Yeah, there's a lot, without men, we're not going to have uh, gender equity, are we? <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's pretty too. important. I think it's <laughs> great that you've raised that issue because we've all got a role to play in gender equity because it's not always, not everything's always uh, the deficit is in the women. It's in women for their issues. Sometimes it's in men as well. And again, I go very practical about what some of the things that, that men can do. I think importantly, first of all, for your organisation, whichever one you're in, you need to make sure you know what the issues actually are. Um, where are the issues for win- women in your organisation? In in UQ, there's particular spaces within for academic staff that there's a ceiling for them going between B and levels B and C, um, and understanding that different disciplines ha- have different contexts. So it sort of makes sure you you understand the issues. I think it's how you talk to people, how you treat them. How do you make sure you're thinking about opportunities for people and thinking about the gender issue as you're doing it, whether you're a male or female? The unconscious bias training we've got at UQ is really useful. You can give yourself uh, quite an education to find out that, you know, all of us have biases, but you have to understand, understand which, what are yours. And the other practical thing is some, there's really uh, great leave entitlements for men in terms of uh, not only caring duties as a parent, but also um, I'm at the stage where I have to think about care for elderly people and also in, in our family care for someone who's disabled. So I think there's a, a lot of great leave entitlements that men should take advantage of in terms of supporting their
0: families in whatever
1: way they can as well.
0: It is so satisfying, frankly speaking, to actually see how gender barriers are being destroyed. And um, in this case, I'm talking about women taking on high leadership roles. And just one of the recent examples is the announcement um, that Professor Kathy Foley, an Australian physicist, will be Australia's ninth chief uh, chief scientist and the second woman appointed to this role. And by the way, the first time I saw this announcement was from your post on Twitter. You have a very active presence in uh, social media. How do you find time?
1: <laughs> well, um, and congratulations to Kathy Foley. Uh, you go, girlfriend. Uh, so I know Kathy from my time in CSIRO. So the Australia got it right in, in putting her in that role. Um, social media for me is two two purposes. Um, The first, number one, is spruiking the achievements of the organisation that I'm in. So, you know, when you're working in an organisation, I want to be proud of what it's doing. So I use social media across Twitter and LinkedIn mainly to spruik about all the research um, effort that goes on at UQ. And I think that's part of my role as uh, Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research and Innovation. I'm the Chief Cheer Squad Leader for what's going on in research. And I, a lot of people pay attention to things like that be, um, on social media because you're giving sound bites and people just get to know, oh, UQ's doing that. Oh, that's about an individual within UQ. Or you know, there's certain research, I didn't know research uh, like that was going on at UQ. So I find it as a good way of helping with our reputation as an organisation. But I'm no fool. Um, the second reason is I have to think about my personal brand too and what I associate my personal brand with. And so I, by speaking about the research and innovation, it keeps building my brand about being across what's happening in the research and innovation ecosystem. People will follow me because I'm trying to keep up to date with what's, who's moving around, like Kathy, for example, and who's doing what in terms of major research and the innovation there. And it helps people connect to me as well. There's a lot of people that think about, oh, that's an interesting place. I might go and work there and they connect through to me or they might connect me into other opportunities with industry and government. So I keep doing it because it helps me connect to people in ways that
0: I I wouldn't um, nationally and globally. So it's not about finding time, it's about finding the satisfaction in that communication, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: it's because I think it's we all have to communicate and so you have different means of doing it and I find it's the most efficient way for me to let people know. So if, even for my internal teams on the internal websites, I have it linked through to my social media because I don't need to write all the blogs and everything, just watch the Twitter feed, that's what's going on. <laughs> that's
0: right. So it's more efficient. <laughs> that's correct. Um, so... Uh, what do you enjoy then? What do you enjoy most in your current role?
1: So, yeah, I have to ponder this because I, I have to do a kind of strategic statement <laughs> <laughs> um, about what I um, enjoy. I think it, it's fundamentally about creating opportunities for people around research and innovation. And so that comes down to three things for me. What I really enjoy is connecting people. So it's connecting people within the organisation and then helping them connect to people outside the organisation to make sure their research and innovation can get out there. And particularly for our discovery researchers is making sure other people notice what they're doing so then they can connect to them in ways that pulls them through that pipeline I was talking about in application, demonstration and deployment. Um, the other is convening groups. You know, I like a party. Um, but uh, in convening groups, you're getting people uh, together for a, uh, around a common goal. So whether that's changing policy or processes within the uni, and I get a lot of feedback uh, on that. Um, how do you convene people with industry and government? Uh, so that convening kind of construct I think is really important and I really enjoy that. The last C, so that's connect, convene, is catalyse. I really like catalyzing things, whether it's new projects, big or small, and helping people see their part in it. So if I had to summarise why I really enjoy my job, it's it gives me the opportunity to connect,
0: convene and catalyze. And and how do you strike a balance between work and life? What's your secret?
1: Yeah. So I, I think it. I always struggle with the word balance because it, it, may, it thinks things are kind of all equaled out. And it's hard to achieve a balance in every, any one day. Sometimes it's hard to achieve a balance in any one week. So what is it you're trying to balance? Because life for me has got so many different dimensions to it and often work, work's dimensions aren't as rich and full as the life dimensions. So the, I always struggle with the balance bit. Uh, so what do I, I kind of do? Um, my family would say all I want to do is connect, convene and catalyse everybody. <laughs> um, so I uh, spend a lot of time connecting with my family. Um, so I have my immediate family is not too far away. So I do a lot of things with them, whether it's gardening, whether it's climbing the mountains, swimming in the bush or doing a jigsaw. I do a lot of things with, with my family. They're really important to me. And... I think apart from that, um, it's a lot. Of, a lot of my time is making sure I do de-stress too, and doing doing the things that give me joy and happiness by myself. So while I am a big people person, there is a point in time I want to be in a cave or by myself, and um, making sure I take that time to inject it back into me. Because if I'm doing really well, and I'm
0: motivated to connect, convene, and catalyze people, then I'll be able to do it. And um, one of the last questions actually on my list, Uh, can we take you back to when you were 20 and what would you advise a 20-year-old Bronwyn on how to best accelerate her career?
1: Yeah, back to my 20s. That's a bit scary. (laughs) Um, It's a great question, though, uh, because it really makes you stop and think. So I think I'd tell myself, invest in knowing about yourself. Know what you're motivated by. Know what your derailers are. When When is it you're going to be in a situation so you can pull yourself up? So if you know yourself well, you can seize opportunities when they're in front of you. You can avoid the quicksand. And I think the other thing about knowing yourself is that you can actually help others if you know yourself because you can sometimes see yourself or give story or narrative to help people seize the opportunity or avoid the quicksand. The other thing I'd tell myself is it's good to get advice, one, but in the end you've got to command your own decisions. So collect the advice but make sure you command the decisions that you need to make spend time with your loved ones. Um, I think I had a period in my career where I was very, very busy. And I think that's why you heard that impassioned thing before about spending time with your loved ones, because they're not always going to be there. They may be overseas, they may pass on, etc. So spending time with your loved ones, seize the moment. The next is, uh, you've got to back yourself. It's great if people back you, but you can't expect them to back you. So if you don't back yourself you know, you don't seize those opportunities and things. And the, the last one sort of goes back to the other comment you asked, what I do when I'm not at work is work just as hard on making yourself happy as you do in your actual work as well. So part of my happiness comes from doing a good job of work, but make sure you love yourself for the bit that you don't do it at
0: work as well. What a great advice. Thank you so much, Bronwyn, for your time today. We've, I've certainly learned a lot and I hope um, that will uh, help others as well to navigate and understand, you know, the academic environment and what it takes, you know, especially when you are in the leadership positions. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Elena. That's it for this episode of Women Finding Success. The podcast series was initiated by the Sage Athena Swan team at the University of Queensland. Thanks to Workplace Diversity and Inclusion team and Gender Steering Committee for their support and coordination. The series is produced by Dr. Elena Danilova with technical production by John Anderson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe or write a review on the platform you get your podcast from. Thank you for listening.